Well, brothers and sisters, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I'm sure that you've heard that expression before, so much so, in fact, that I think it kind of rings with a certain triteness to it. Um, But it does ring with much truth. Um, There is much to be said for determination in life, along with perseverance and persistence. Ever since the fall of man into sin, uh, man has been subjected to hard labor just to make a living, just to get by, just to subsist in this world. But the curse of God for sin, under which we live, does not prohibit us from working hard and finding much success in this world. The challenge, of course, is finding that success and, uh, and keeping it throughout our lives. So, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. And the same thing applies to our spiritual lives, uh, to our faith as, as Christians. God's Word speaks of the Christian faith as a race. I still remember my days uh, running cross-country in, in high school. Uh, there are days when a, when a runner feels good and is out to better his best time. There are other days when the runner only looks for the finish line in order to be done. God's Word also speaks of the Christian faith simply as a journey. Uh, If not running, then at least walking, hoping to make progress. But with the progress we're looking for or not, there is always the forward movement of time. Either way, whatever metaphor is used, uh, the Apostle Paul calls us to press on. Philippians 3 uh, verse 13 uh, records that, that Paul wrote, But one thing I do, forgetting, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's why we're here this morning. We're, we're here because we have finished one more week of our lives and we are faced with a new week that we might run the race, that we might continue the journey of the Christian life. And will we run with perseverance? Or will we journey, uh, or will the journey prove too much for us? We, we need to prepare each Lord's Day and we need to set out anew uh, each week with a determined faith. And the thing, really really the only thing that will give us the determination that we need is to be reminded and assured that the race has already been won and the journey has already been completed in Christ and by our faith in Him. Going back to Philippians 3, this is why Paul writes that he presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we, we are the same as the disciples of Jesus and under his call. Follow me, said Jesus to Peter and Andrew, James and John. And they followed him. And why? Because, because he called them. The very call of Christ itself was the power to, to stand them on their feet, uh, 
and to set them on their way following Jesus. The same power that was at work in creation, commanding the world to be. The same power that brought Lazarus out of his grave is the call that brings a sinner to follow Christ in faith and to continue believing and following him throughout the Christian life. And yet we need to be prepared that it will always be a race. The the journey will always continue and perseverance will always be needed until the end. This is what we learn. This is what we learn by looking at the life and faith of Jacob. Jacob was ready to die. He knew it. He called his sons to gather before him. and, And here we see the final faith of Jacob. And it prepares us to understand that we will never arrive, so to speak, in our race, in our journey, in our faith, until death. You've heard the expression, be careful what you ask for, because you just might get it. So be careful of asking that even tomorrow you will arrive at a fully mature faith, because that may very well likely be the day of your death. The first point this morning is the final faith of Jacob. And we've already started in on this point. We have, uh, we have seen most recently that Jacob was willing now to admit about his two favorite sons that neither of them would be preeminent. Joseph had uh, been a great blessing, uh, like a branch running over the wall. And Joseph would be blessed, but by the blessing coming through Judah. About Benjamin, Jacob had very little to say, uh, and none of it uh, terribly complimentary. Uh, And what a change, right? I mean, from Jacob giving Joseph the coat of many colors and refusing to be comforted uh, from Joseph's death, or so he thought at the time. Uh, Also, what a change after refusing to let Benjamin go down again to Egypt with his brothers, his precious son. Now Jacob was resolved. Now he saw that God is sovereign in his choice and that the scepter would not depart from from Judah. But it wasn't just the sovereignty of God that he accepted, but the, the sovereign grace of God. We are not told how he knew that the scepter would not depart from Judah, but God had clearly given him to know this. And, uh, and we can see by this story that it was true. It, it came true because David was born of Judah and, uh, and Christ was born the son of David. But why Judah? Of the 12 sons, why Judah? None of them were without sin, but it was Judah who had even left the family and had gone to live among the people of the land, even taking a wife from the Canaanites. Why Judah and not Joseph? Joseph was the faithful son, and, and, and he even became a great ruler in Egypt. He probably had a literal scepter of his own. And yet the scepter would not pass from Judah. And it's to show us again the sovereign grace of God. 
And we should take it to heart. First, for the person who figures, uh, well, it makes good sense that God chose me, uh, being the, you know, the overall good person that I am. Beware and be careful, because God's grace is just as much grace to that person than to anyone else. Furthermore, for those who suspect that they are beyond the reach of God's grace, being just too sinful, they must beware as well. In fact, they may need to become even more convicted of their sin in order to bring them to Christ and to faith in Him. And why more conviction? Well, because the thing that should bring each of us to to faith in Christ is is the urgency that we feel for the for the uh, of our need for salvation under the judgment of God. A person caught in a in a building on fire doesn't say to the one coming to their rescue, "Oh, I'm I'm not worthy." Instead, they say, "Thank you for coming. Now, please." Get me out of here so that I can live. I think here of the of the tax collector in the in the parable of the Pharisee and the and the tax collector. Uh, All he did was to make a plea for mercy. And Jesus said that he went down from the temple justified, saved by the mercy of God. The parable illustrates the teaching of Scripture that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The plea for God's mercy is always granted. But the parable also teaches that we must not think ourselves worthy to be saved, and and neither must we think ourselves too unworthy. Worthiness or unworthiness, that's not even the issue, because we're all unworthy to be saved. And that's why we desperately and we urgently need the one who is worthy. The grace of God is his sovereign grace. So that it never comes by way of any worthiness except the worthiness of Christ. In the end, it's the worthiness of Christ that counts. Which is to say, his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice on the cross and his perfect place now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But the final faith of Jacob is also shown by the instructions he gave concerning his death and burial. And to recognize the significance of this, I I think we really do need, in a sense, to, to try to get into Jacob's shoes. Jacob's entire family and, and life had been relocated to Egypt. The permanence of Jacob's life, to some degree, in Egypt is shown to us by the fact that once they did bury Jacob in Canaan, per his request, and and, and we'll get to that, yet they returned to Egypt after they had gone to bury him in the Promised Land. And yet, nearing his death, Jacob had not forgotten the Promised Land. He had not forgotten the covenant and the promises of God. For three generations now, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promise of God concerning the land had gone unfulfilled. All three patriarchs, as we call them, were only sojourners in the promised land. 
Our text itself reminds us that Abraham had had to buy a plot of land from the Hittites in order to bury his dead. Think of a person who lives his whole life being homeless, uh, at least never actually owning any property for himself, except for the cemetery plot that he owns where he will be buried when he dies. That was Abraham. That was Jacob. And, uh, and that was Isaac. And that was Jacob. So that, so that now Jacob was subjected even to die, not even in the promised land, but would eventually belong, uh, or uh, in the promised land that would eventually belong to his descendants, but he died in Egypt. We need to recognize that he's, he's still a sojourner, but even more, it's, it's almost as if things are going backwards within God's doing and his work to fulfill his promises. He's still a sojourner, but he's not even a sojourner in the land that he was promised by God. And yet Jacob still believed the promise. It may seem in our own lives that things are going backwards. But the promises of God are still true. Jacob wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to his grandfather, to his father, and to him as well. And so he gave instructions for his burial in the land of promise. By this we see the, the faith of Jacob. And this makes uh, the case that, that faith was not something different in the Old Testament compared to the New, because, because the Apostle Paul defines faith in Romans 8 exactly as we see faith in Jacob. In Romans 8, 24, it says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? In other words, you don't, you don't hope for what you already have but you hope for what has been promised you. And so Paul goes on to write, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's Jacob at the moment of his death. Now anyone can say, well, you know, Jacob was old. He was, he was just being nostalgic. Things hadn't worked out so well for him in life. He, he just wanted to be buried in, in the promised land. But that kind of reading misses the thread. It, it, it misses the theme that runs throughout Scripture, the, the theme of God's promises from the beginning. It's the promise of God, the promise of God, the promise of God. And thus the faith of Abraham, the faith of Isaac, and now the faith of Jacob. Jacob saw himself as belonging to the promised land. And that's where he wanted to be buried. Another way to to put it is even to say he wanted to be buried in Christ because he knew that he was dying in Christ. And it's even as the Apostle Paul writes that those who believe in Christ in life die in Christ at their death. And it's why the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, speaks of our comfort even of our only comfort as belonging 
to Christ and belonging to Christ's body and soul in life and in death. And it's why we speak of our victory in Christ over death and the grave. Do we expect that we will never die? No, we know we will die, but we belong to Christ. So that as our Lord himself teaches us and promises us, though we die, yet shall we live. So the second point is the melodrama of grief. Because the text in Genesis 50 emphasizes the grief that was expressed upon the the death of Jacob. First in verse 1, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and, and kissed him. As far as I know, it's the only reference in the Bible to somebody kissing someone who's dead. Then in verse 3, it says, The Egyptians wept for him seventy days. In verse 4, there's a reference to the days of weeping. Next, in verse 10, it says, They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he, that is Joseph, made a mourning for his father seven days question becomes, I think, why this emphasis? On one hand, it's, it's the respectable thing to do, to grieve when, when someone you love dies. We can only hope that someone will express some grief on the day of our death. Death is the great enemy, and it deserves to be lamented and grieved. But remember that this was the Egyptian culture and, and we see the incursion, we might say, the, the incursion of the Egyptian culture and the embalming of Jacob. Why did Jacob need to be embalmed by, by the method the Egyptians had, had developed? It certainly allowed for Jacob's body to be preserved and transported to be buried per his request in the promised land. But otherwise, it shows that there, that there is no hope here of resurrection. There was some view in the Egyptian system, if you will, some view of an afterlife within the Egyptian religious beliefs. But the practice of embalming demonstrated the the lack of a hope of resurrection. And then the grief, which which was a a planned grief, what we might call a a programized grief, 70 days. uh, That's over two months of we might say, intentional tears. We see this kind of thing in, in many cultures, even in our own day, and it, and it shows us that that's all mankind can do with death. All they can do is grieve, so they might as well make the most of it. And it's not that grief is wrong, as we've said, but the Apostle Paul teaches in First. Thessalonians 4, verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Why all the commotion of 70 days of intentional, culturally determined grief? And if that sounds disrespectful to the dead, well, then know that it's the very language that our Lord Jesus used as he rebuked the Jews for their grief. In Mark 5, it says that Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. 
And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, only sleeping. And they laughed at him, which shows that their grief, their weeping and wailing was mostly a a show, a a cultural practice. It it was just the thing that they were supposed to do. In fact, in some cultures, uh, you can actually hire professional mourners to come and put on a display of mourning and weeping and, and wailing. And all, I suppose, with the thought that this somehow honors the dead. Well, maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't honor the dead, but but we must not be those who grieve as if we have no hope. Death is the great enemy. No one ought to rush toward death, and when death comes, the point is not to pretend that it isn't our great enemy. But in the death of a believer in Christ, faith must not eclipse grief, but neither must grief eclipse faith. For the world, grief is all there is. For the world, all you can do is honor the dead by 70 days of weeping and wailing. But at some point, it's got to end. I mean, life goes on for the living, which is why they need to hire mourners in some cultures. How do you, how do you manage grief and, uh, and the need to earn a wage? Well, just make mourning a, a job that you do. Then they can work, even as they mourn at the same time. Again, the point is not to be insensitive to those who grieve. Death is certainly a a sad reality in this sad world. But here then is the hope that we have in Christ, that we can grieve, we should grieve, but we have a great hope in Christ even as we grieve. The last point is the planting of a seed. That's what it is to bury a believer in Christ. Again, how can we say that Jacob was a believer in Christ? Well, he was, because even at his death, he was clinging to the promises of God. At this point in history, the coming of Christ was a promise from God, but a promise that Jacob believed, which we see in his prophecy, that the scepter would not depart from Judah, that Christ would come from the line of Judah. And we see Jacob's faith by his instructions that he was to be buried in the promised land. The promised land and the promised Savior come together. And as Jacob gave instructions for his burial in the promised land, so he clung by faith to the promise of God for the coming of a Savior and for resurrection and eternal life through that Savior. So death is real. Grief is real. But the promises of God are just as real so that to put the body of a believer in Christ in the ground and to cover him or her with dirt, even that is an act of faith. It is the planting of a seed. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44, says, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised 
is imperishable. And, and Paul admits the, the awful reality of death. That a dead body is sown in dishonor, he writes, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We ought to clarify by when Paul speaks of a spiritual body, he, he does not mean that the bodies in which believers will be raised will not be physical bodies. But even as they are physical, yet they will be imperishable and they will be immortal as the very resurrection of Christ brings about the resurrection of those who belong to him. And this is our hope. It is the hope of the gospel. It is the hope of Christ. And even the same hope that Jacob had as he anticipated his death and burial. Death and burial for the believer in Christ is the, is the, is the planting of a seed. It doesn't take away our grief completely, but it adds much hope to the experience of death. So, brothers and sisters, let us not grieve as those who have no hope. Let us not dishonor those who die in Christ by grieving apart from the hope that they have, that we have, in Christ Jesus. And as we press on, as we always find ourselves weak in faith, and even as we aspire to an even greater faith, let us remember that we we have already arrived at the faith that saves simply by looking to Christ and confessing Him as our own. And in our last day, in our last day, let us have this mere faith that Christ is ours and we are His and we have His promise of resurrection. Amen. Please pray with me. We thank you, O God, for the wonderful teaching of your word and the promise of the resurrection. We thank you that this has been accomplished for us and we can look forward to that great and marvelous day when Christ will return and those who are asleep in him will be raised and be raised even unto eternal life. Grant us, O Lord, this faith and none other, and grant that we would walk in it in this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.